Please uh, be seated and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 61. So this marks the end of our um, look at the Psalms, especially as we've been looking at what it means covenantally, and then going into our series on uh, why we participate in a covenant renewal service, and perhaps more pointedly, why why we should be worried for the church if they are not engaging in a covenant renewal service. Um, But before we get there, we need to deal with these few subjects within the Psalms. So, Psalm 61 Hear God's word. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May may he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. The word of the Lord. Well, as we come to Psalm 61, as I said, we sort of come to the end of our reflection on the Psalms and how they address covenantal issues. Here, we, it's a wonderful example of both and, that David, David prays um, that for a king to be enthroned forever, David is a king, Saul before him was a king, uh, Solomon becomes king, and there are many other kings after him, um, but ultimately... Um, we only serve under one king, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But what we learn from this psalm is that there are benefits to having a long-term relationship with God that you don't have if you're only just beginning out. And therefore, there are things to avoid, you know, namely impatience, uh, when it comes to relating to God. Now, relationship is a difficult word to define when we speak about being in relationship with God. What does it mean? For you to say that you have a relationship with God, what what does that actually mean? The Bible uses the word covenant. We, We are in covenant with God, and that simply cannot be defined as relationship because covenants have multiple explanations. In fact, there are more than one covenant. There is one covenant in Christ's blood, which we participate in now, and all the others lead to that. But what does it mean to actually walk with God? So I prefer the term that young people growing up and old people alike, that the two things you need to keep in mind as you relate to God is to keep a very close and clean life. Close and clean is how I would describe what it means to walk with God. Close in the reading of his word, that is, speaking his word to you, listening to his word. And then, of course, praying, praying your words to God. 
And the Psalms are unique, as I said at the beginning of the Psalms, because <clears throat> they are men's words to God while at the same time being God's words to us. So they fall into a very unique category of actually reading God's word. We understand that when we read Genesis, um, we know that it is written to the Israelite people, those who have come out of Egypt, we un and by Moses. We understand that when we read the letter of Philippians, that it is written by Paul to those in Philippi. And yet when we read the Psalms, we, we recognize that this is God's word, just like the rest is, but at the same time it is man's words to God. And so they are the very go-to place when we understand what it means to walk with God or to relate to God or what a close and clean life looks like with God and in some occasions what it looks like when you are not walking a close and clean life with God. And so the blessing of a long-term relationship with God means that not only do you have, you should have more wisdom but you should also be more stable in your faith. That as you walk, there are less things as you grow as a Christian that can destabilize you as someone who walks with God. For instance, for a young Christian, it, they are not, they may be discouraged if they do not receive sort of some sign or answer to prayer. And they may begin to wonder whether or not God even hears them or if God is ever answered. But one who has walked with God for a long time will begin to realize that if God does not give me evidence quickly, that is not cause for discouragement. That is simply, I now know how God works. Now that type of learning can only happen over a long period of time. It's not something that you can learn just by reading a text. You can understand that others have learned it, but it is something that you have to learn yourself. And the way that you learn it is by walking a close and clean life with God. And the reason why that's important is because <clears throat> a person can stop and start. They can say, well, yeah, I've been a Christian for a long time, but they can stop and start in their walk. There's, there's no length of consistency. There's no length of discipline. And so as you will well know that a person who is well disciplined gets better at the thing that they are disciplined in. They become stronger in that very discipline. Well, the same is true as you walk with God. That as you maintain a close prayer and the reading of God's word and a clean, the confession of sin in avoiding sin, walk with God, there are blessings that come with that that, that almost compound over time as you live your Christian life. And one of the key blessings is that you are more stable. Less things affect you. Less things knock you off. Less things turn you to the world. You're able to spot idolatry a mile off and not be affected by it. These are the long-term blessings of what it means to belong to God. Also, we must recognize that there are some things which actually give us assurance rather than a lack of assurance, like doubt. One may wonder how doubt can ever be a cause of assurance. But if you think about it throughout the Psalms, doubt is often 
uh, a cause of assurance rather than a lack of assurance. And let me explain why. When you read God's word and you read of everything that God can do, and you know that God is known by what he does, and you learn the things that God can do, when God doesn't do them, you begin to doubt. But that doubt is based on your knowledge of what God can do. It is not based on anything that you don't know that can happen. And so your very knowledge of what God can do can actually cause you to doubt. Because you know God has done this in the past. You know God has worked marvelous ways and wonderful ways for people in the past throughout scripture. And then you begin to pray to the same God for a similar situation or a circumstance. And then doubt creeps in because the answer hasn't yet come through. And yet that very doubt is not caused by what you don't know. It is actually caused by what you do know. That God can answer, God can do this, but nothing seems to be happening at the moment. So doubt in that way, strange as it may be, is actually an assurance of God's existence and God's care. What it isn't is some kind of reflection on God is sort of busy elsewhere. This is where that as we walk a close and clean life with God, we begin to understand that God has multiple reasons which we are not privy to. That the way God leads us is in a very strange and unusual way sometimes where you can never predict what the outcome would be. I mean, at 15, I started work expecting to be a boat builder, and here I am as 48 as a pastor for the last 24 years. I never would have imagined that to have been the case. And God, of course, the way that he works in your life is he gives you particular skill sets and callings at particular times, and he directs you in the path that he will have you go. And of course, you make less mistakes, um, <clears throat> and you begin to doubt less the longer you have this close and clean life with God. So doubt uh, can actually be cause of what you do know rather than what you don't know. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. I don't know what next week will bring or even the rest of this year, but I don't doubt. I have no doubts about tomorrow and I have no doubts about next week or I have no doubts about the rest of the year. And the reason being that I have no doubts is because I have no specific hopes. And so now we begin to understand that doubts are connected to what we hope for specifically. Okay, if I want something to happen in three months time, <clears throat> I can then begin to doubt during that three-month period as to whether or not it will happen because doubt seems to court hope. And this goes back to God because it is God who we hope in. And so now we begin to see that as you live a close and clean life with God over a period of time, that stability increases the closer you are and your walk is with God. But all of these things remain true. Doubt, hope, uh, expectation, disappointment. Disappointment always courts expectation because disappointment is nothing more than unfulfilled expectations. I'm disappointed because it has not happened or I'm disappointed because it actually has happened and I expected that it wouldn't happen. And so you begin to understand that a lot of these things go hand in hand which are part and parcel 
of relationship with God, how we relate. So when I talk about relationship with God, I hope you begin to understand that it's, it's not quite as simple as defining that as I love my wife, my wife loves me. It's, it's much more complicated and indeed deeper <clears throat> and beautiful because it is with a God who has secret things that you will never know about. The secret things belong to him and the things that are known are made known to you. And so there are characteristics of the covenant, of a covenant people, and that is that they know their God. One of the characteristics of being a covenant people is that you know the God to whom you belong. In the same way that one of the characteristics of a kingdom is that you have a king. It just goes hand in hand. If you have a kingdom, you therefore have a king. And here in Psalm 61, um, I have landed that... The king that David speaks about in verse 6 and 7 is actually himself. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure. It could also be Saul. And I'll explain why I'm not quite so sure at the moment. But whichever the case may be, I've landed with David because I think it makes more sense that it's David. But I want to explain something that David does when Saul is king that we should all remember because it certainly explains things that are often confusing and why the Lord, though knowing it could be a different way and a better way, leaves it the way that it is. And we'll get there in a moment. And so the stability here for David, that is the stability of a nation, depends on a king um, who is good. In fact, if you just read just quickly that prolong the life of the king, may his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. David understands that in order for stability to happen in the nation, you need to have a long-term relationship. You need to have something that is consistent over time. And so the only way to sort of get there is either you have a series of kings that are all good, that is, who love God and obey God, or you have a king who cannot die, or at least a king who, if he dies, can overcome death. In order to have a kingdom that is consistent and stable, you must either have one of the two, and which is the better? And of course, we know that this promise, this hope, is pushing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good and perfect king who lives forever. And so now we begin to understand how stability happens because it is that relationship between God the Father and God the Son within the kingdom that gives the people of the kingdom the stability that they have because the kingdom depends on the king. And if you have a king who dies, then your stability is questionable because who will replace the king who dies? But if you have a king and a kingdom that is enthroned forever, then depending on the king and of course in our case Christ, you have stability and comfort and peace that will reign and last forever. So now we begin to understand how the relationship works between the king and the kingdom and of course the people in the covenant because they go hand in hand. So let's just look through these few verses together. It's hard to know for sure, as I said, whether or not the king in mind, the king that David has in mind is himself or if it is Saul, and that's pretty significant because of the history between David and Saul. 
On balance, I think it's much more likely to be King David than I do Saul, but it's worth addressing the issue nonetheless. So notice how David is drawing a distinction in verse 1 between the cry and the prayer. And I don't want to move too quickly on from this because this shows the level of maturity that David has in composing this psalm. What David does here is he is indicating that there is a difference between the circumstance that a person can go through and the response that that person should have to the circumstance. And so I just want to sort of sort of pause and draw your attention to this if I can. Reacting to a circumstance in life, whether it be a threat on your life like David has, or a threat on the nation, or whatever it may be, um, <clears throat> the way you respond and the way you react is different. So I want you to imagine uh, a child falling over and grazing her knee. Her reaction would be to cry. And the reason her reaction would be justified is, in one sense, is because when you fall over and you graze your knee, especially on a gravel floor, it's painful. And that evokes the emotion and you begin to cry. Well, that there is your crying out. But that's not your response. That is your reaction to the circumstance. The response would be the mother coming along and cleaning the blood off the knee, getting the stones out of the skin and sort of bandaging it up. And so too often Christians don't understand the distinction here and so they cry out at the circumstance thinking that they've actually prayed to God. And what David is showing us here is that um, hear my crow, God, listen to my prayer. David is, this is the level of maturity, he's drawing a distinction between his reaction to the circumstances and then his response to his reaction and the circumstances itself. So when I cry out to God, uh, I'm in pain, I'm in sorrow, I'm, I'm downbeaten, I'm burdened, that there's, you know, groans and moans that you just, you just cannot articulate because you're either desperately upset or in a huge amount of pain and you just cannot, you cannot speak to God because you, you just cannot get the words out because the circumstances, you know, pulled you down like gravity. But the response is to pray out and through that pain. And so this is something I think which you learn over being in relationship with God over a long time. And then, of course, you quickly move from the cry to the prayer the older you get and the longer you walk with God. But too often when you're a young Christian or when you're a Christian who hasn't really dealt with some of these tension points in the Christian life is you spend more time crying than you do actually praying. You spend more time moaning about the circumstance than you do actually going to God and say, I want to deal with this now before you. And so there is a clear distinction here between the cry and the prayer. They go hand in hand. It is a both-and relationship. But there is a difference between um, being the type of person who is simply just, just moaning about their circumstances or, or burdened down by the pressures of life and then taking that to God in prayer. God hears the moan. God hears the cry. God hears the call of desperation. But the prayer is where you're actually then bringing it before God. And of course, that is something that you get stronger at 
the longer you live your Christian life. But too often I have seen it that many Christians spend a huge amount of time crying, to use David's words here, and not enough time praying. They are reacting and perhaps even overreacting to the circumstance rather than actually bringing the issue before God in prayer as a response. In other words, you will notice throughout the Psalms, David in particular speaks to himself quite a lot. My favorite is Psalm 11. You know, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? Now, how, how, can, you, how can you do that? You know, why, does, why is David telling himself off? Well, because sometimes you have to speak to yourself because your emotions are telling you one thing. Your fear is telling you one thing. Your, your circumstances are telling you what, and sometimes you have to bring yourself into check with the word of God and then bring that to God in prayer. Well, that's kind of what is happening here. But these are the blessings of maturity. They're the blessings of a long-term relationship with God. And so verse 2 so simply builds on that, that David is called upon the Lord with a heart of faith. He wants to be led to the rock um, in verse 3. Why? Well, verse 3 explains, because you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Every confidence David has for asking what he does from God is based on his relationship with God in the past. You have been this to me. And therefore, I'm trying to re-emphasize, if I can, the blessings of a long-term relationship with God, that it is that that you're able to draw on and bring yourself to God and bring yourself to the response of prayer in the midst of a trial. It is that length of relationship. And therefore, the better your relationship is with the Lord each and every day, the more likely and faithful your response is going to be in every trial or tribulation or circumstance that burdens you down. More importantly, you remain stable in the midst of disruption rather than losing all control. And, and I've... And I've like I said, I've been in the ministry for a long time now, and I've dealt with a lot of people that sometimes it is very, very difficult to bring a person under control when they've, when they've lost control of themselves, where the circumstance is dictating to them everything that they think, say, and do. They're just consumed uh, in a very destructive way, very similar to Asaph in a different way, where he is sort of <clears throat> a life under compulsion or... King Artaxerxes in the book of Esther, a life under compulsion where you're not actually in control of yourself or, or manage to have any discipline over yourself. You're simply driven by compulsions and, or driven by circumstances. And those people who, who find themselves in that um, find, the, find the, the difficulty of bringing their soul back under control extremely difficult because it's, it's a matter of discipline. It's a matter of of practice. And so when things get tough at the beginning, it is very, very difficult to come to God in prayer. Very difficult to come to God in prayer. When you, when you, when you fall on hard times, it is, <clears throat> you, it is very difficult to bring yourself to God in prayer sometimes. Some people find it easy, but others can find it very difficult. 
But it comes back to the type of relationship you have with God of what you know God has done for you. And David says, verse 3, for you have been my refuge. David is, is drawing on what he know God has done for him in the past. And whether or not it turns up today, God knows that God is this way. And so now we begin to see the benefits of this long-term relationship. And again, uh, the attention is drawn uh, to the expectation in verses 4 and 5. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Again, David is drawing on the fact that he has had a relationship with God for a long period of time. Or at least it is mature. At length of time probably doesn't matter quite so much as the quality of that time that you have walked and spent with, with God. You know, it's probably much better to spend five undistracted minutes in prayer with God than 30 distracted minutes. You know, the, the quality um, can influence the quantity, but it's rarely the other way around. It's rarely the other way around. Verses 6 and 7 then looks beyond the present and beyond the importance of the individual alone to the actual kingdom and the kingdom having a king. And this kind of echoes 2 Samuel 7 where you have probably one of the best arrows pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God in the whole of the Old Testament. Because in that passage you have uh, the promise that there will be a king and therefore a kingdom that will reign forever. And of course, everyone is therefore expecting that it might be the person who comes after David, but it is not. Because Solomon's kingdom does not last forever and neither does Solomon himself. And so you have this both and. Yes, Israel has a king, but the true king who lasts forever, the true good and perfect king who cannot die which is necessary for the nation's stability, it's necessary for the stability of the kingdom of God, that you have a king who is good, perfect, and cannot die, um, is not going to be Solomon. And so we wait, and we know, of course, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so David concludes his prayer, though starts with a cry, he concludes with a promise of performing vows and this happens always, it seems, in the congregation of you know, the people of God. That this simply isn't a personal performance of a vow, but this is actually something done before God's people. And so at this stage, we kind of ask the question, well, does it really matter then which king it is if it is pointing to Jesus? And in one sense, the answer is probably not. That if, if the king and the kingdom that is going to be enthroned forever clearly cannot be David and clearly is not Saul and clearly cannot be Solomon, you know, as we look at it, um, does it matter if we now know that it's Jesus? Does it matter if we figure out who David is praying for? Is it himself or is it Saul? Well, I think it matters for this one reason, and I think it's a pretty important reason. When, uh, before David is king, um, he recognizes that, <clears throat> that Israel has a king. Now, this is 
this is pretty self-explanatory that Israel has a king. And of course, the king that Israel wanted was so that they could be like the nations around them. And God sort of <clears throat> gives them what they want, but it comes, of course, with problems. Um, but it points ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the reason for us drawing our attention here to whether this is David praying or for himself or David is praying for Saul comes down to what we read in 1 Samuel, when David has the opportunity to take the life of Saul. In chapters 24, he has the opportunity, he's even prompted by his own men to take the life of Saul. And then a couple of chapters later, I think it's chapters 26, he is then prompted again by his own men, or at least for one of his men, to actually take the life of Saul. And this is what David says. For who can put his hand out against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And what David is saying this is that it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter how bad Saul is. If he's appointed by God, you cannot touch him. I just want you to think about that covenantally for a moment. That we live at a time, and we've actually certainly heard about it this morning in Sunday school as John's been leading us through our studies on, on post-millennialism, why it's the best of all possible worlds, why it's the, the biblical view, um, is because we want to know how much we can expect now uh, in, as we come to the second coming of Christ. And of course, we, perhaps like David's men, get a little bit tired of the way things are. Well, why don't, why don't you just get rid of them? Why don't you just take over them? Well, what are you supposed to do with what the Lord appoints? David knows that he cannot simply get rid of Saul. And therefore, it's quite possible that David here could be praying for king to go, uh, the, the king to go on forever. Now, he knows that can't be Saul because he knows people die. But this is where I find the tension point. I believe it's David but given what David has said about the life of Saul being actually appointed by God, it could also equally apply to Saul as well. And the reason I find this so striking, especially for us as we have a covenant renewal service, and as we participate in a very post-mill view where we believe that we should engage uh, in everything, everything should be converted to Christianity. The politicians should be converted to Christ, but politics itself should be converted to Christ. Everything should come under the Lordship of Christ without exception. And we truly believe that. But here we have an example of David telling his men not to reach out and touch Saul because if you go against what the Lord has anointed, even though it would be better to get rid of him, it is not the right thing to do. And this is where the patience and the stability of a long-term relationship with God comes in. Knowing the right thing to do, even when it doesn't look like the right thing to do. I want you to think about that for a moment. So eager are we to push forward perhaps God's agenda in the world because we know it is right. Sometimes we have to understand what the Lord has appointed for the appointed time to bring about his ends. And therefore, everything must come under the Lordship of Christ. Everything. 
And so I find this lesson both arresting and striking in the deepest possible sense that David, in his maturity, understood that you cannot overturn or go against what the Lord has appointed and be guiltless. You, you cannot do that. And therefore, it is possible that David could be praying for Saul, having Saul in mind. I think, however, it's more likely that David has himself in mind. But whoever it is, it doesn't matter ultimately, because both men will die. And both men are not as good as they should be to be the true, a good, and perfect king that a kingdom needs to remain stable. So I want you to be just enthralled this morning, enamored, just amazed that you now belong to a king and kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be overturned, okay? That what the Lord has appointed now in our age will bring about everything under the Lordship of Christ. It is only a matter of time. We are now living in this glorious moment where we have a stable kingdom and a king who will last forever. And therefore, now you, you have this stability at a kingdom level, you then have it as a personal level. Because whatever rocks you cannot rock you out of the kingdom, so to speak. Whatever, whatever presses you down cannot press you out of the kingdom. You belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken and to a king that is truly enthroned forever, who will not die, who will live forevermore. Just, I feel like sitting back and folding my arms. I mean, that, that's what it feels like. I feel just, I feel that there's no weight on my shoulders. God is in control. I will live under the Lordship of Christ, doing everything that I can to please him, knowing that failure, if failure comes, it comes. But I'm not failing. I'm simply moving in the kingdom that God has established that will remain forever. So let me exhort you with this final exhortation. David leads you and me in what I would say is a very mature prayer with a great deal of mature understanding. That he has, <clears throat> I know he has his problems, but he does have a close and clean life with God. He does walk closely. His heart is after God's own heart. And so this is an exhortation for you to recognize that you belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Because you do have the king that is enthroned forevermore. Enjoy that. Rest in that and live your life in the light of that. Um, but recognize this, that when you do encounter circumstances, make sure you understand what the source of your insecurity really is. Don't be misunderstood as to what you think your insecurity is. Think about it in terms of relationship. Imagine it this. That if you only pray at times when you're in trouble, you are tempted to think that the troubles are the source of your insecurity. And that is wrong. The troubles are never the source of your insecurity. The source of your insecurity is always that you don't belong to God in the midst of troubles. That's the source of true insecurity. 
true insecurity is not the trouble. It's not belonging to God in the midst of trouble. So don't confuse the two. When you go through trouble, you are not insecure because you belong to God. When you go through hardships, you will not become unstable because you belong to God. Don't, don't misappropriate, don't misalign where the insecurities come from. Insecurity in terms of assurance can often come from your lack of belief in the God that you belong to or your lack of assurance of the God that you belong to can actually do for you. It comes down always to the relationship you have with God, not the circumstances you face. And this is what we learn in David's mature prayer. David's stable, but David isn't stable because there are no troubles. David is stable because he belongs to the God who is stable. This is the difference, and this is what I want us to recognize. David prays, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Trouble is troublesome, but it is not the source of my insecurity. The source of my insecurity is not having God in the midst of those troubles. And so let me finish with this. There are some lessons, uh, young people in particular, um, you need to understand, that can only be learned over time. And you will learn them. And as you grow up with God and as you copy the men and women, mums and dads that are older than you, you'll begin to realize that actually keeping a close and clean life with God will make you a very stable and a very mature person. And the blessings of that long-term relationship is, is one where you will remain stable and you will become wise and you will be able to walk in the knowledge that you belong to a king and kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the joy of what it means to be a covenant people of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let me pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you. We thank you. We truly thank you for the truth that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken and to a king that cannot be removed, one who is enthroned forever, the good and perfect king, Christ Jesus. And we thank you for this. May we revel in it more. In Jesus' name, amen.